Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical director or a practice manager and your to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to support you to roll out your network-based contracts and projects, I would love to help you. We also provide consultancy and coaching advice to healthcare business owners and clinical leads looking to take the next step in their career or their business. Come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Rachel Dunscombe. Rachel is the CEO at NHS Digital Academy. She is the principal at a company called Tectology. She is a member of the UK Artificial Intelligence Council. She is a visiting professor at Imperial College. She is a mum. She is a wife. She, she's got type 1 diabetes. In this interview, we talked about selling to the NHS and what elements need to be aligned to be able to do that successfully. Rachel walked us through what a typical week is like in her life from a work perspective and she shares with us her approach to coaching and advising people when they've got ideas that, you know, like kind of fall short of the mark and how to redirect them. We talked about confidence We talked about boundaries. We talked about managing expectations. And Rachel shared with us just how grateful and how happy she is with the community and the network she has built around her when it comes to digital healthcare. There's so many nuggets in this podcast. You're honestly going to need a pen and paper. And this is a sort of interview I would come back to revisit it and revisit it because this lady's walking her talk. Enjoy, please share, and I will see you in the next episode. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm looking forward to this. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. Um, Our mutual friend, Peter. Yeah. He's like my unofficial podcast agent. He's great. So I was at school with him and his mum and my dad worked together at the same school, St. Oswald's in Liverpool. So yeah, Pete, Pete's always been like that, but he's amazing, isn't he? Yeah. Really, really kind. So Rachel, could you share with our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do today? Yeah, so I am CEO of the NHS Digital Academy, and that's basically a setup and a program and an organisation that takes all the CIOs and senior clinicians that work in digital health through postgraduate sort of catalytic education to make them ready to work at board level and ready to transform the NHS so it's super super fun 
I get to work with doctors, nurses, pharmacists, CIOs, aspirant leaders. I get to work with loads of really vibrant people. Um, so that's what I do part of the week. The rest of the week, I work for Tectology, which is uh, really about creating exceptional human experience via healthcare and wellness. And in no particular order, I've, I've worked, you know, pretty much globally. So I've worked across Australia, New Zealand, Russia. I've worked with the Chinese. I've been working with Germany. I've worked with Canada. I've worked with the US. So I, I kind of love the idea that we have a global community in digital health. So that's really what I do with technology the rest of the, the week. And I also do lots of other things like sit on open standards groups. I'm a digital editor for the BMJ. I sit on the Digital Health Society board again, doing sort of global work. So yeah, I, I, I keep busy. That's probably the way of putting it. So yeah. And what was the job that kind of catapulted you into the world that you are in now? That's interesting. I've not got a planned career journey, but this career didn't exist when I was, you know, say at university, like 25 years ago or something. So I would say each job has been has been really useful in a different way. And I'd say the CIO role at Salford. So like I was, you know, in charge of the technology at the most digitally mature organization, the NHS, we got it to that level, the, the team and I, and then managing the sort of data across Greater Manchester was kind of, that was transformational. You know, I remember coming in one day and we'd done some work on stroke and we realized that we're saving one more life in 10 over a hundred days. And it was just, you know, when you just come in and it's transformational in terms of feeling it's worthwhile. So that CIO role at Salford was just amazing. The academy role, you know, that's been transformational because I've just got to work with such amazing people, you know, as in it doesn't matter whether you're a participant, your faculty, who you are, you're just part of this group of people that are transforming the NHS and looking at how we can unconstrain the future to, uh, and positively impact care and, and experience for, for citizens with technology. And it's, yeah, I think those two jobs for me have been the most recently transformational, but I think I've taken something from everything I've done, even if it's not been a good role. Do you know what I mean? And I'll probably come on to that a bit later because, you know, there are a few things I do want to say. It's been International Women, it's been, you know, Women's Day this week. And there are a few things that I would probably take from some of the jobs that haven't been great experiences, but have taught me a lot. Are you the sort of person, given that your job is taking you all around the world, are you a yes person? Do you always jump to opportunities or are you very reflective and very strategic about your next move? Um, so I'm strategic in the themes that I want to work on. Yeah. But I'm opportunistic. So it's funny, I was on a call this morning about about the learnings from Anti-Fragile, a book, which is, is a really great book. And I think the idea is that you need you need to be on a mission. You need to know what you want to do, but you have to be you have to embrace and roll with change. You have to learn from the unexpected. And I think in this world, especially, it's important to do that. So it's, it's a balance. I know what I want to work on. You know, very purposely, two years ago, I said I wanted to work on personalized medicine, genomics. You know, pathways that that are more diffuse, if you like, that will will meet the needs of the citizen. Um, I didn't know how I was going to serve that but I have stayed true to what I wanted to do, both in terms of working with other people in education to, to make that reality and an understanding for other people and practically uh, applying it. So I think it's a balance. I'm not somebody that likes no structure, but I'm somebody that's pretty happy to roll with opportunities as they emerge. I think that's okay. probably the way that I would put it. And from the inside, do you feel that 
got, and I don't know all of the groups, but you've got, for instance, NHS X, NHS Digital, you've got NHS Digital Academy. Do you know, is it really clear cut what you all of you do and what you don't do? So is it clear cut? And the, there's new bodies that are emerging as well. So there's, you know, there's uh, yeah, the, the, they're putting NHSX into NHS England. They're forming a new body, another type of academy, which is going to be charitable, which is to regulate innovation and applications as opposed to teach. So there's lots of things. Is it clear? I don't always think it is clear. I think the system is really in flux at the moment, especially with the integrated care systems being formed. And I've got to say that, you know, even the people that work, you know, on boards in the NHS don't know how to navigate that at the moment, especially that, you know, there are some really good people that we know how to reach out to, but it's not clear how the future is going to emerge, right? I think, I think there is kind of confusion. Um, and I get mixed up with Sarah Wilkinson, who, who's obviously got, you know, a huge job with data and, and all of that kind of stuff, NHS digital, uh, you know, she's done some amazing stuff during COVID. But even that, the fact that they reach out to me for things that aren't mine, and, and I've had people reach out to me in the last week about this new academy that they're forming around apps and innovation and saying, oh, are you recruiting? I'm like, oh, it's not me. It's a different academy. You know, it's so it's, it's not clear. And I, I think really taking some feedback from the CIOs recently, what they really want from the system is for that sort of clarification around the roles and also for delimitation of uh, policy guidance and application. So, you know, as you probably know, we need to tailor things locally for our communities, for our demographics, for our geography. And I think we've got some really sensible people on the ground that can do that. And so they need something that can be applicable, but then adapted for, for local need. So yeah, it's not, it's not clear. It's not completely clear at all. Um, but, you know, I I hope that the work I do in the academy helps people to create networks that help them navigate where they need to go from that perspective. I'm not sure if it's always been so or I'm just feeling it more nowadays. But, it, you know, there's always been ambiguity. But I think at the moment with the flux of the change of organisations, new organisations, policy changing. Yeah, we're, we're definitely having that, you know, signposting and, and lack of clarity issue. And to help us understand what a typical week looks like, I know everyone will say it's not a typical, but what have you been up to this week? Oh, this week. Wow. What have I been up to this week? I should really go and look at my diary to tell you because I can't remember. <laughs> I am going to open my diary. Um, so I have been doing work on the NHS Digital Academy. Uh, Monica Fletcher, who's also, um, you know, very senior nursing background academic. She's been working with me on international opportunities. I've been talking with my MSc students. Some of it's been very boring, like 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 payment of their MSCs. Some of it's not that interesting. Some of it's been really interesting. So that's that's been great. I had a BMJ editorial meeting, and I've been in put in touch and people love this been put in touch uh with a number of people and we're going to form a group uh, including one guy who's an amazing professor called Amit around how we're going to use social media and more democratic modes of communication for the BMJ in the future so that was that was super nice that meeting it was it was really really good I think I have been working on on future models of healthcare. Uh, with the guys technology so looking at how organizations going to have to form one really interesting piece I've been doing is around how far you can 
create variants pathways before it becomes unviable. So, you know, how many variants of a pathway do you need to serve the population's need? And that, that's been kind of fascinating. On the academy side, I also spent an hour with Aisha, who Aisha Rahim, who's a deputy medical director at Lancaster, talking about the future. And that that was an absolute privilege. She's an amazing lady. So that was that was good. I spent a little bit of time with my folks at Salford, Jim, my former CMIO, John, who replaced me at Salford as CIO, again, talking about process and governance. I spent some time with the Good Governance Institute talking about making governance exciting, which, believe it or not, <laughs> I love those How people. do you do that? Oh, God, go look at that <laughs> website. They're really funky. It's about, again, democratisation of governance and participation and making it worth participating in, which is is really interesting. I mean, we got talking about Estonia and all sorts of things like that. We're doing a bit of work with Wales on digital innovation and open data, which has been super, super interesting as well. I had a brilliant meeting and you will love this because, you know, I think we share this in common with a doctor that I work with in Vienna around joining up data from the Freestyle Libra with Garmin wearables. And working out what the early signals are for wellness, health, what we can get from the big data about people that are controlling the blood sugar, the lipids, all of that stuff, right? So he's he's super brilliant. He's he's originally from Tunisia. He's a, a doctor and he works in Vienna. So we've got this kind of collaborative running on that. Um, I could go on. I, and then I spent three hours with the AI Council yesterday, sort of running through what's, the roadmap. What's that acronym stand for? So, uh, artificial intelligence. So it's it's all of the advanced kind of decision-making technologies, advanced intelligence technologies. And there's 12 of us in the country that that cover health and all of the sectors, so military, retail, all of that. I'm kind of health rep on that group. And we had a big meeting because we're going from having a roadmap to having an AI strategy with the government. And we're talking about how you measure the impact of advanced technologies. We're talking about what should be on that roadmap. And I was a little bit on my soapbox about outcomes leveling up using these technologies to improve quality improve access find out communities that aren't you know being served properly so that that was super interesting and lots of other meetings and I've landed today talking about open data and now I'm in here which is great because I I get to reflect on all of that lovely it's been a good week basically so it's been really esoteric and it's also included folks from the US, folks from Australia, folks from Saudi, which has been super nice. So as you were saying that, I've written down, So, and when I'm doing these interviews, I'm just like making notes. So I've put down confidence, visionary, productivity, communication, deep knowledge, crossing cultural boundaries. I think for anybody listening to this, thinking, what is the role of a CEO? And we all do... depending on what organisation you are in, it's very, very different. But correct me if I'm wrong, your job, it sounds like at the moment, is around sharing your knowledge and listening and collecting ideas and then bringing them back into the academy or your various roles to see about its practical application. Is that fair? Yeah, so very much the time that I'm paid for in the academy is about running the academy, which is fairly light touch, and sharing the knowledge that I gather through my other roles, right? And and that's probably a really, really good summary. So, and that's what I enjoy, actually. I enjoy sort of gathering knowledge, building kind of knowledge collaboratives, 
and then getting people from the UK as part of that sort of network of knowledge. Do you ever feel a pressure to, if you spend a lot of time listening and sharing and collecting ideas, some of those, oh, I'm sure a lot of those ideas are not going to go anywhere because there's only so many hours in a day, so many priorities. Is there, do you have to implement? I, I need to do some stuff. At any one time I have to deliver things because I've got a track record of doing that. But I have no problem that if I find great ideas of finding them a home. So I've got some great, I'll call them partners in crime. We're not in any kind of crime, but I, I'm on with <laughs> one of them this afternoon, Brian O'Connor from from the ECH Alliance and Digital Health Society. He's in, in his 70s, works full-time in digital health, one of the brightest brains I know, right? And he works on global networks and digital healthcare. If I don't know where something goes, I'll ring him and I'll go, look, this seems really reasonable. It's not something I can get involved with, but can we find it home? Can we find a group of people? So he runs about 50 global ecosystems all around the world that, that collaborate on digital health to provide knowledge and actually do stuff, right? And it's from big industry right the way down to, to single individuals in academia. And that's what I do. I try and signpost ideas that I think are going to be really good to new homes, right? If, if it's something that I don't know where it can be actioned. Um, and wherever possible, try and get some of my wonderful NHS folks, you know, in, in the whole NHS system involved in something that's going to benefit, benefit the NHS. And so... I have to know that it's, I can't let people down. That's part of what my thing is, managing expectations and not stemming the flow of that ability to deliver. I feel I have to help people find somewhere where they can go with it. And I quite often have done, which I think is, it's, and I think I'm also good at spotting where an idea is viable or not and helping people either to go ahead with that idea or to perhaps change to a, a different framing of the idea and move it into, you know, a different space. So I, I you know, I, I generally, at any one time, yes, I have to deliver something. So I deliver the academy program and all the learning and all the teaching. But at any one time, like that blood sugar piece, I'm going to do that myself. It's one of the few that I'll do myself. But because I'm diabetic, it's really important. And because this doctor is so passionate about it, it's it's just one of those where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to really get involved in this one myself, even, even if it's not, you know, something that's got money attached to it per se it may be a research project but it's really important to me that one and for those of you that are listening my youngest daughter Talia has got type 1 diabetes and Rachel is um, diabetic so you mentioned ma managing other people's expectations I know it depends on the context but what sort of language are you using to advise people when you think their idea isn't great yeah so so uh, and it does depend just very, very occasionally you'll get somebody that has an idea that is not going to go anywhere, right? And that's a hard one because you realise they're burning time and energy, you know, on something that may not have a market or the market won't be ready for five years or it's difficult. So you, you try and give them some orientation on what they might do instead. And you can see where the ideas come from, but they might need to go further back than they think they need to go. I tend in that situation to try and work out what the person's passionate about, what sparked the idea and what they want to achieve in life in a, a more great sense, if, if you understand what I mean, you know, um, and try and work out where they might put their energies and give them some suggestions. Yeah. Now, that doesn't happen that often. What you're more likely to get 
and this quite often happens, is somebody who has an idea, they're sure the NHS wants it, they want it in the form they've got, and they're going to sell to the NHS. And and they've perhaps misunderstood how fragmented the NHS is. It's what, 384 organisations or <laughs> something like that, right? So 384 buyers. And, you know, it's not as advanced in some areas as people think it might be. Yeah, or it might already have a solution when they think that their idea is the right solution. And so sometimes it's about reframing the markets people might go to. So they might go to Southern Ireland first or Australia first, or they might want to try Canada or the Nordics because they're smaller, but they're still social systems. The most recent one I had was actually around somebody that had an algorithm who was absolutely sure they were going to put their own interface on the algorithm and create this black box. And people didn't know you know, what was happening in the black box. And that was fine. And the sort of piece I got into was, do you understand we have to assure the safety of what's happening there? And we need to know more about it. And so very gently gave them a view of what I and the other teams, you know, people like my clinical officer, safety officer Jim Bates would have had to do to assure a system and why they would have to think about creating, you know, more of a explainability about how it worked and just left them with some advice and guidance around that and that that was a a bit of a difficult conversation because the other piece they hadn't necessarily done was their market uh, research around what was happening in other countries where people were doing very similar things and so I gave them a list of things to go and look at and say don't go into exactly that same space differentiate from these people because I know they're all working on similar themes and so sometimes it's sometimes it's not so easy because you know sometimes it's actually my students or or students from imperial that are doing some of these things and i think they've got a really great idea where they put their money and time into it but normally it's the most important thing to tell them rapidly if it needs to do so so you will say look i'm being agile about this you need to know you know so that you can change plans and and change your course to navigate towards success uh rapidly and it you know if you frame it constructively it tends to go down okay. It does. It just occasionally you've got people who are absolutely convinced that something that's never going to work is going to work. But that's that. That's not the majority of the time. It really isn't. So you mentioned user term selling, selling to the NHS. You mentioned market research. What elements need to come together to be able to effectively sell to the NHS? So this this is really interesting. So the Secretary of State uh, at DCMS, so the, the digital department, put out the 10 priorities for the UK yesterday. So that was partly what we were reviewing and, and issuing on the AI Council. And part of that is really about creating symbiotic industries in the UK. And what I want to do is create an ethical economy where this isn't just about selling into the NHS. This is about partnering with the NHS for long term success. Yeah. And actually having a stake in creating jobs and success and futures for our communities in the UK. So for me, I think selling into the NHS is it's really hard now and we're not good at partnering and we're very sterile about buying. Yeah. Whereas what we need to do is create a even a set of joint ventures, partnerships with industry, spin-offs, and we need to seek a win-win-win. And that win-win-win is for the NHS to win, the companies that are creating jobs, and hopefully, you know, many of them will also be headquartered in the UK, creating GDP and, and all of that good stuff, you know, that we, we need for our economy to thrive. And then win for the patient, because that innovation friction is removed because of that, that uh, well-governed but very close working between um, private and public sector to create outcomes for the patient and hopefully jobs for their community as well. 
that really was reflected in that statement from DCMS that we need the, these sort of microeconomies, and digital health is one of those. And so selling to the NHS now, I want that to get far easier because at the moment, um, it's difficult because the National Audit Office report said we need 5% spent on technology. We have about 1.8 to 2 spent on technology in the NHS at the moment. Wow. Yeah. So we, you know, I mean, kudos to everyone that works in digital health in the NHS. They're pulling it out for that amount of money. The discretionary effort, the, the I call it Blue Peter IT sometimes because they make every, you know, every bit reusable. Every Remember, they used to make things out of cornflake packets and stuff. I used to joke it's Blue Peter IT because everything gets, you know, reused. They repurpose hardware, software. They turn old desktops into terminals. All of that good stuff happens. But at some point, we we really do need to start increasing our spend because as the hospital walls are replaced by the home walls and the virtual sort of community hospital and community care, that's really about the infrastructure of digital. It's about connectivity. It's about sensors and wearables. It's about patient interaction and systems. And that will take investment and it will take great infrastructure as well, which will need nearer that 5%. And what we see for our companies now that are trying to sell to the NHS is a combination of a number of things. I think it's it's that, you know, low spend. People expect they will be spending more on these things, but actually it's quite, you know, quite a limited budget. It's people really trying to make do with what they've got infrastructure-wise. And so they're not buying the latest and the greatest. And it's people not having perhaps the size of teams they will need for the future. So not able to deal with a, you know, some of the the variants of interesting technology that we could embrace. And people think, why, you know, why wouldn't you do this? And it's a set of constraints that we have now. And I would love to see how we move towards that National Audit Office report and getting nearer the 5%, because I ardently believe that during COVID, my profession, which is the digital health profession, has really done us proud. They've made everything. They've just done that and they've reused all they could to make virtual services happen um, and, you know, do the analytics needed to plan services. And I'm really, really proud to have worked in that profession, be part of leading, you know, the, the education. But it's not hard. It's, it, you know, it's hard on that side of the fence. It's not any less hard for the companies selling in because, because of that buffeting of, you know, constraint of skills, constraint of investment and system change, which means that it's not always, it's not always consistent, the buying behaviour. And indeed, organisational buying behaviour is something we've done some good work on. I'll big shout out to Tom Slater, who, you know, has done some work with us on the Academy and he's from NHS Digital. But we have to have organisations to understand what they need to be by and at what scale, but plus, you know, have the resources to design that and the resources to actually procure that. So we're moving up a maturity level, but it, it does make it hard. And I talk to many companies who say, how do I sell into the NHS? And I try and explain to them all of the dynamics and how really they need to help understand the pain points for the NHS so that they can pull on the same end of the rope as the NHS. And it's about partnering and it's about understanding what sort of packages of things the NHS wants to buy. So it makes it easy for them to deploy as well. So sometimes it's easier if you partner with three other companies and create an offer that the NHS can buy because the the individual bits, they just have, don't have the cognitive space to actually deal with. They'd rather buy a, a sort of a, something at a scale, if you like. Mm -hmm. But it's not easy, I will say that. Um, 
but I am really, really committed to supporting those small to medium and even the big companies, anyone that's, you know, furthering in symbiosis, the NHS's agenda, I'm there to really support them. Do a lot of work with Tech UK and other people that are also trying to support them because it's it's important and it's the jobs for our kids and our communities and everything else. Digital health could be a, if we, if we become world leading at this in our communities, serving our communities, but also exporting great digital health innovations. And that's kind of where I'd like to see us be. Do you have much interface with the like clinical entrepreneurships? NHS Academy yeah yeah so um I, I know a lot of those crew and I, I you know I spent time with Yinka and those those guys you know that the guys that are are um being those clinical entrepreneurs the great thing is they've got some NHS insight right they've got some really good insight into the NHS um I it's still hard for them though you know, the clinical entrepreneur scheme because because we're not at an optimal state to we're not at an optimal state to, to buy at scale some of those solutions yet. Reason being is we've all got different data in organizations. So take one of the solutions that came out with that. I won't name them. But you know, they designed a beautiful solution, but it wanted to plug and play into a standard set of data. And each organization had quite different data, you know. And you talk to some of those clinical entrepreneurs and I think it's an amazing scheme. And I think that's really important. But what I'd love to see is the NHS building back to that scheme. So building some of those standard interfaces, building building in, I don't know, uh, you know, every CIO would commit each year to go and, and have a, a group session with the entrepreneurs for half an hour, an hour virtually, something like that. But just building, because what you don't get, this is what goes wrong really in innovation is that you don't have the commissioning from the system built in you see it in many uh, sort of incubators or accelerators but what you want to really do is pipeline solutions while you're also priming the buyers to move towards those solutions as well that's the ideal piece as i said with you know 380 odd organizations in the nhs that could procure from you how do you kind of corral those to move them towards do you use policy do you use you know goodwill do you use best practice what do you use to try and push those towards a set of entrepreneurial solutions that you're supporting into the system and i think that system-wide piece i think i think actually we see a bit of that in singapore they've done some good work in it but actually creating a pull through from the system for those solutions almost a commissioning of the solutions is what I'd like to see in future how do you keep motivated in such a I say to people it's an incredible system but it is a frustrating system and there are so many competing priorities how do you keep focused on the mission when sometimes it is diff- you know it is hard so there are a number of CIOs and people that work in digital health that that just support one another. It's an amazing community, right? And, you know, it's an amazing community where you can raise the phone to people, you can give them a WhatsApp, you can, you know, if you're having, if, if you're bashing your head against the wall with a situation or whatever, we've got to a point. So originally, you know, when we were all being commissioned and we had to compete with one another for services and, and you shouldn't really talk to your neighbor because they'll be like bidding on like, you know, the pediatric service. Well, that's gone. That's gone. And, uh, which is beautiful because we're showing intelligence, but how do we keep going? There's a great sense of humor with many people, an inclusive sense of humor. 
you know, which is, is, is not about cliques or anything like that, but it's, it's just, you know, about sharing the joys and sharing the, the, the down times. There's also that community listens to people when they're proud of something they've done as well now. And that's beautiful because when you get that positive feedback for having achieved something, it makes those, those harder days more possible and there are numerous communities and groups and you know discourses and whatsapp and, and things like that where people can shout out and go has anyone come across this are you having this problem too you know and i think that's really nice um i think it's really nice we've got the shori network as well amazing group of women who are just you know creating uh, a great network around digital health and their supporters and their, their advocates, who again are a support network for, for you know, many of the people that come through the academy. So there's, there's a set of networks that are joined sort of together loosely, which is coming actually towards a professionalism network where you kind of register with BCS and other things, which I've done, uh, and Federation of Informatics Professionals. But the aim is to include everyone that wants to get into a digital health career and give them psychological safety in that space, right? So that when you are having a bad day or where you don't know what to go, you can you can call out to a set of people that and it's a grown community. So for me, I've got to say that they're just they're just really great people to do that with. I've not actually felt that before, you know. I've not worked in a space where I can make a call out to maybe 20 or 30 people who I know will answer you know if there's a if there's a problem and I had a couple through yesterday on on Twitter messenger oh can you help me with could you make a statement for my report you know and it's like yeah of course that's oh I also had my friend John he he popped through his application to be in the BCS can can you can you sign me up for this for the reference to the work I've done it's just that quid pro quo it's it's going around the system now which I really like I really like that so what you just said was mine we had a coaching session with my life coach today and we talked about honoring yeses and nos and when honoring your nos doing so in a way that you don't cast negative judgment on yourself so you're not like oh no oh but decide do I look am I seen as a bad person am I being this am I being that so you have got many pulls on your time you've got this so it's lovely that you can pick up the phone to people which means other people can pick up the phone to you but you have a fat you know like you've got a family you've got life outside of your work even though it's just you know like it's one life but there's lots of elements to it how do you honor your nose that's really really interesting so back in my 20s my husband and I decided to go and study psychotherapy right and we learned a lot about boundaries and we learned a lot about you know you're no good to anyone else unless you're good for yourself, right? You've got to be whole and intact. And so I guess that articulation, I do sometimes get carried away and so finding it fun and then realise I'm tired. That's something that does happen. But sometimes I, I have to say, look, I can't help. You know, I'm at capacity. I do so much at the moment unpaid. This is not something that I can actually prioritise at the moment. Can I suggest this? Or, or you know, just gently say that's not for me at this point in time. And I learned that through that work because, you know, being whole yourself, you're not going to be able to look after your kids, your mum, your family and everything else unless you work out what makes you whole, right? And what makes you intact. And, you know, I've just booked in for the rest of the year, my holidays and my diary, and I'm going to take them, right? Because I'm going to enjoy them. I'm going to go walking. I might even go, I don't know, I'll go have some fun somewhere with the kids. 
it, that's that's really important honoring boundaries and honoring other people's boundaries and to be seen to to publicly honor people's boundaries like yeah you're going on leave i've got your stuff you go really enjoy i'm not going to bother you i got it and, and doing that for other people too and so i i think i'm bad when i just get so enthused by things and, and that means that I can get tired and being diabetic you've got to look after yourself right you can't you can't fry fry yourself physically so it's not but it mentally when I realize something is just you know it's beyond what I can do I, I've got ways of just gently signposting very succinctly yeah um <laughs> yeah. and just ex- and really I, I guess people seem to understand when you get when you nail that language I think I think it's learning the language, isn't it? And I think that the higher, I suppose the higher you climb, you get used to it. But I think that there is that messy middle where you're trying to move up, but you're still very rooted to where you are and you're trying to move on and you're trying to progress and you're trying to be strategic and you want, you, you generally want to help. And sometimes you don't know how to help. So when you said, I like when you said you succinctly kind of move people on, because I think some people, sometimes you get caught in the trap of you're, you've said no, but then you've said, but ha- try this and try that. And maybe you should do this. And you're, before you know it, you're, <laughs> you're doing the thing that you try to say no. Um, would you describe yourself as a very confident person? She's nodding her head, guys. <laughs> so I, shaking, I, sorry, shaking her head. Not I, yeah, her I, head. I was dreadfully shy as a teenager. I used to like cling to the sides of the room. This doesn't come from a place of confidence. It comes from a place of curiosity and a deep intrigue and enjoyment of working with other people, right? So, no, I'm definitely not confident. I have reframed because, you know, I I used to feel that I was an imposter. I've reframed that as pioneer syndrome. Okay. Okay. And I had to work on that for a while because I would just have this dreadful, oh, my goodness, what am I doing here? I really, you know, I don't belong. I don't have permission. Um, You you know, the whole thing. Uh, My friend Philippa calls it the, the little gremlin on your shoulder, right? And... Yeah, I mean, looking at anyone that's working in on new frontiers, you know, if, if you're going to explore the jungle or whatever, you would rightly not feel completely confident like you were, you know, taking a stroll in the park because you never know what, what might come out of an, a new environment that you've never explored before. And you never know what's going to happen around a corner. It might be something wonderful. Or it might be something quite dangerous. And so I kind of take that feeling to, to mean that I need to have my wits about me because this is new and it's different. But I've learned actually humans have got so much capability but many people wait for permission to explore and I just try and triangulate with people and say look am I going out of my depth here there are people I really trust you know and I'll say you know have I gone too far and I keep checking in and I I I keep feeling what I feel but just say this is normal to feel really really like uncomfortable actually in some situations you know but I've surprised myself. And because I've surprised myself, I realize others can surprise themselves and achieve things they never thought they were going to achieve, right? And that's kind of some of the the stuff on the academy for me, because people so, uh, talk so much about feeling like, you know, just like they don't belong or they're an imposter or, you know, whatever else. And it, I think that's fine. I think that's fine. You just need to 
you just need to examine what it means for you and examine whether you start feeling like less of an imposter in a domain. And and really, yeah, I just, so I'm not confident. Um, it's not that I'm not confident. It's just that I've been on a journey and I continue a journey, yeah? But I have been thrown recently into some situations where I felt really not confident. And how do you manage in those situations? So like you don't have time to go, you know, like you don't have time to call a friend because you're in it. Yeah. And and I tend to listen a lot more in those situations and just observe and watch other people's behaviours and look at what I can learn from other people. I tend to jot a lot down in my notebook. I've always got my pen, <laughs> just, just observations and things like that. I try and look for things that I've done before or I've, I've witnessed or experienced that are parallels, right, that could, could inform me about what's going on. But, you know, the one thing I have learned, and this has only been in the last three, four years, I think, is that I get up every day and I pretty much deal with every, every challenge and that I, ha- I can do things that I never thought I could do when I was younger. And so that is in itself is a confidence you know, that that I know that I can do things that I haven't done before most of the time. And that's that's kind of, that's what just keeps me going through those situations. You know, I, I think, well, I'll give this another couple of sessions and see if I'm still contributing. If not, I'll stand back and I'll get somebody else to step in. And before you know it, you're you're really holding your, your own in the conversation. Sometimes this is about not having a shared frame of reference or language, I've found. And by the time you've you've created something that's a mutual understanding, suddenly you realise that you have got something to contribute. <laughs> that's been very common, actually. I think, yeah, when you were saying that, I was just like, it's so true. And I think you're, because you don't understand what the other person is saying, in, when you're on it, you are listening and you're trying to work it out. When you're not on it, you're instantly thinking, I don't know. It must be me. I don't understand, I'm crap, <laughs> versus can you just talk to me a little bit more about that? Can you tell me what you mean by that? Can you give me an example? And really confident people do that. I, I, I used to work with this guy called Clive and he'd say, just stop. In my simple mind, I don't understand this. Could you simplify it for me? And could we go back to basics? And I used to watch him and I'd think, wow. And, 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 you know, there's nothing wrong in doing that. That's yeah. a really confident move because it's saying I'm confident in who I am. And I'm trying to find our middle ground. Right. And I like that. Mm-hmm. I like I like trying to find things that you share, because mm-hmm. as soon as you start sharing things, you remove the friction and actually cross purpose understanding can be quite dangerous and healthier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two more questions at the, the top of this interview. You mentioned International Women's Day and potentially being in jobs that weren't the greatest for you and moving on. Can you talk to us? Can you give us one example? Because it's, not, it's a good thing to move on. You know, like how long, but how long do you leave it? You know, like give it a chance, but don't, you know, if it feels crap, like get out. <laughs> yeah. So, so I've got to say, sometimes you do need to get out and get into the next chapter of your life. And that's probably not the majority of times, but yeah. So the, there was one example and this guy was my boss's boss, very, very senior manager. Um, and he was doing my appraisal and they're both in there. And he said to me, I wasn't committed enough. I'd never make anything. 
because um, I'd gone down to four days a week at that point because my dad was terminally ill and things like that. Uh, and I'd never get anywhere. Right. And the really interesting thing was the deputy was a woman. And uh, once he'd gone out of the room, she apologised. And I said, well, are you going to do anything about it? She said, no, I can't. She said it was out of order, but I can't do anything about it. And I'm going to tell you a bit of a funny story, actually, because I, I found that I, I first of all, I did get really upset because I'm, I'm a really trusting person. I believe somebody senior, I'm probably a little bit better now coping, but as in I can now, you know, rationalise. And then I started thinking, this is really not right. So I did something to, to create my own therapy while I was in this job. And you're going to laugh at this. So I sat in the dentist's waiting room and I was reading Private Eye. It was the only thing that was there. And it says, have you have you experienced workplace bullying in the little column bit? And I thought, yeah, I have. I think there was bullying, right? So I took down the address and it was it was a psychologist in London who was doing a study on bullying in the workplace. So I actually had a session with him and contributed to his research and debriefed on what happened. And it's a much longer story. There's a whole journey of things that had happened there about me being told that I couldn't go and do stuff in London because I had children. And, you know, it, it would mean that I couldn't go to the meetings because that kind of thing. Um, so I debriefed with him and that was cathartic. And he said, you do realise that was bullying? And I said, thank you. And he used that as part of his research and anonymised it and used it as part of the narrative. That felt like therapy to me. But as I've come on through the years and, and I examine that experience and I talk to other successful people, both male, female, all people, anyone that's successful at some point has been told they're not good enough, they're not going to make it, they're not right, there's something wrong with them. Everyone gets told that at some point, in some way, because people do like to oppress other people that threaten them, really, in some cases. And I just want to tell people that because there are two ways of dealing with it. There's the way that successful people have dealt with it, which is perhaps to examine it a little bit, not get over anxious about it, say, is there a germ of truth that I might want to adapt something about me that would make me more successful and use it maybe in that way, but not take it as a, there's a massive problem with you. It could be about the other person, the situation. It could be about, mis there's all sorts of things it could be yeah, about. Yeah. yeah. What can you learn from it? Is there any truth? Be objective. Talk it through with somebody you trust. Like that, you know, random guy I emailed from private eye, which is just great. It was just one of my crazy journeys in life. Like, um, or, or you could take that really serious, beat yourself up and never get anywhere in your career, right? Yeah. And I've seen people do that. And that breaks my heart because the talent that I see that's not been given permission, I can think of one doctor who was told he would never be a leader, right? Because of his Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs says you're not a leader type. He is now doing the most phenomenal clinical leadership across the UK. And I'm like, it took me to relay my story to him, I think, and he thanked me for it before he got a bit more confidence and I was a tiny bit of his journey. And you look at it and you think, there's so many people being stopped from being at their best. And I'll give a big shout out to Ian at Kingfisher Coaching, who I work with a lot. Awesome, awesome guy who works with groups. Everyone can be a leader. It's about realising your leadership style. And I just wanted to share that because it, it's not just about women. It's, it, you know, it's it's about everybody. It can happen to everybody. But I think I'm woman, I'm diabetic, various other things. And, you know, in that case, I think what he was saying is I, I don't really like you and your approach and who you are and, and what you stand for and the fact that you, you're actually doing some good work. And I've done okay. And you know, <laughs> just a tad. You've done. I, I mean, you've done all right, Rachel. Stop I've, showing I've off. I've done okay. And 
I don't think I am detrimental to society. So <laughs> I take what he said as not really being particularly relevant. Um, and I just hope other people can reflect on any bad experiences they may have had. All you need to know is that everyone that gets into leadership, everyone that's successful has experienced something bad in their career. If they'd taken it too seriously, they wouldn't have got what they got. So please examine what's happened to you and see really if, it, if it's, you know, it's normally not anything that should be holding you back. It might have a little bit of a, well, maybe you should adapt your style, your articulation, or maybe you might want to talk it through with a coach, but it's really normally, uh, unless you've done something criminal or, or really bad, something that should stop you from going forward with your leadership journey or your, or your career journey, yeah? Final question. When thinking about where you are today, what three words would describe that? Oh, where I am today. Um, free, and I don't mean free in the sense of, I mean free in the sense now that I feel able to speak my mind and be honest. Okay, free. So I feel free. Um, I feel supported. I feel I've got a network of people that support me. Yeah. Which feels really, really good. And I feel optimistic. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. You take care. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn, just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. It's really, really funny. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.